Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In today's world, famous actors and video games go hand in hand. Stars such as Samuel L. Jackson and Sir Patrick Stewart appear in huge titles like Castlevania or Grand Theft Auto. But a few big stars got involved with video games long before they were the A-listers that we know today. Even one of our favorite actors and musicians, Jack Black, was unable to escape gaming's reach. Before his start in music and acting, Black appeared in a commercial for Activision. This advertisement was to promote their latest game on the Atari 2600, 1982's Pitfall. In the ad, Black describes his experiences with the game. Just last night, I was lost in the jungle with Pitfall Harry, surrounded by giant scorpions and man-eating crocodiles. This was several years before Black got a gig in a TV show, and a decade before he received regular work. Another popular actor, Paul Rudd, is best known for his work on films such as Anchorman and Ant-Man. Here, Rudd lends his acting prowess to Nintendo, demonstrating the amount of fun that can be had by playing the Super Nintendo. The commercial shows newly released and upcoming SNES games, and was aired in 1991, about a year before Rudd's first credited appearance on TV. Yet another A-lister featured in a gaming commercial is Tobey Maguire of Spider-Man fame. Maguire acted in an early 90s commercial for the Atari's Game Boy rival, The Lynx. Although this was one of Maguire's earliest acting moments, his first was a few years before, but was also gaming-related. The first time Maguire was on a movie set was for 1989's The Wizard, which featured heavy product placement of Nintendo games and hardware. I love the power glove. It's so bad. Maguire appears in the film uncredited, standing by the film's antagonist, Lucas. Interestingly, Maguire didn't even intend to be in the film. Maguire told Collider.com, I was friends with a kid in that movie, and I was visiting the set, and I basically just had an opportunity to be an extra. That might have been my first gig in any kind of professional production. Nintendo seems to be pretty good at picking out future stars for their commercials. Another advertisement promoting the use of a link cable for Pokemon on the Game Boy starred none other than the titular Drake and Josh actor, Drake Bell. Although this was made before Bell was famous in his own right, he had appeared on TV with a minor role in an episode of Seinfeld. 
And for today's random piece of trivia, we'll be talking about the Nintendo 64 action title, Blast Core. At the game's level select menu, the time it takes for the planets to revolve around the sun is exactly in proportion with real life, only sped up. It takes the Earth one minute to orbit the Sun, which represents a full year. And within this same time frame, the Moon revolves exactly 13 times around the Earth, just like its lunar orbit. With Mercury, it takes approximately 14 seconds to revolve around the Sun, which is equal to 88 days. Venus takes 37 seconds to go around the Sun, which is equal to 225 days. Mars takes 1 minute and 53 seconds, which equals to 687 days. Neptune takes 2 hours and 45 minutes, which equals to 165 years. Apparent retrograde motion also occurs when viewing the planets from a certain vantage point, which is when planets appear to travel across unusual paths in the sky. And today we'll be looking at some early bloomers in the video game industry. The pink ball of puff, Kirby, is one of Nintendo's most beloved characters. His 1992 debut title, Kirby's Dreamland, solidified his place in gaming by selling millions of units and spawning a series which continues to this day. Kirby's Dreamland was directed by Masahiro Sakurai, who also created the Kirby character. Sakurai's life led him to join a specialist school from an early age, in order to become an electrical engineer. He would later leave this school to join a regular high school, as he realized his true passion was in video games. Sakurai also found a part-time job in order to buy new games. After graduation, he secured himself a job at Howl Laboratories when he was only 19 years old, and started his work on Kirby. His desire was to design not just a simple character, but also a simple game, with his original intention being to use only a single button. Sakurai would later leave HAL due to organizational issues restricting his creativity, as well as the appealing prospect of working with new and interesting creators. While Sakurai may continue to be a high-profile developer, some young talent is often overlooked. Echo the Dolphin is a staple of the 1990s Sega catalogue, with three titles coming out in the decade and a single release in the year 2000. A few years back, and I apologize for my pronunciation here, Ed Nuziata, the series creator, took to Twitter to provide fans with some insights into his game. In his tweets, Ed revealed some fascinating information, such as Echo's name originally being Delphinus, and that the blue ripple effect which appeared in the background of the game's text screens was originally a bug. Ed also tweeted, Obscure Echo Trivia number 5. Zolt Below was 19 years old when he did 95% of the art of Echo 1 and 2. Zolt would continue to work on the Echo series until its final release in 2000, Echo the Dolphin, Defender of the Future. There were plans for a sequel after this, named Echo Sentinels of the Universe, but it was cancelled, possibly surrounding the discontinuation of the Sega Dreamcast in 2001. Lastly, let's jump back and explore the early days of Satoshi Tajiri. Tajiri started his career as a writer and editor for the video game enthusiast fanzine Game Freak. This was before the company moved into the world of video game development. At this time, Game Freak was much smaller, and their publication was little more than handwritten pages which were stapled together. The publication had mild success, with their best-selling issue reaching 10,000 sales. Ken Sugimori, who would eventually become the illustrator of the early Pokemon releases, came across the magazine in a store, which led him to join the team. Tajiri felt that video games were becoming lackluster in quality, and decided to solve this issue by having the company create their own games. In 1989, Tajiri directed his first published game with Game Freak, Mendel Palace. 
Toshiri was still only 24 years old, and Ken Sugimori was 25. And now for this episode's random piece of trivia. Today, we'll be taking a look at Mega Man Extreme 2, also known as Rockman X2 Solar Razor in Japan, which released in 2001 for the Game Boy Color. Due to a translation error during the game's localization, the Reploid Research Laboratory was incorrectly written as Reploid Research Lavatory during the game's opening cutscene. This error wasn't even fixed for the title's 3DS Virtual Console release over a decade later. Sonic the Hedgehog on the Genesis isn't exactly known for its easter eggs, but it does have one or two that may surprise you. During normal gameplay, a screen appears during the game's boot up, which reads Sonic Team Presents. But hidden behind this screen are some secret Japanese credits. It's normally impossible to see them, as both the text and the background are black. By hacking the game to adjust its palettes, or by using a cheat code, it's possible to invert the background of this screen to make the writing visible. In the Japanese version of the game, pressing C six times and then up, down, 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 left, right should trigger a confirmation sound. When the game's demonstration starts, holding down A, B, and C and then pressing start or waiting for the demo to end will remove the Sonic Team Presents graphic and invert the background. Another game with a secret attached to its credits is Secret of Evermore. Evermore had a mixed response from American audiences, possibly due to the fact that many believed Square was only willing to give America either Secret of Evermore or a localized version of Seiken Densetsu 3, but not both. This doesn't seem to be true, however, as the Evermore team was entirely separate from the Seiken Densetsu team, with many of them being new in the industry and having no involvement with localization decisions. The Evermore team seemed to enjoy having fun referencing themselves and their own in-jokes, which can be seen in the game's ending credits. Waiting for approximately 30 minutes after the end appears on screen, an additional message appears stating, you are a patient one, aren't you? Well, here's another cryptic credit just for you. Followed by a lone credit, Dolly Grip, Brian Fadrow. This is a joke attributed to the lead programmer, Brian Fadrow. Surprisingly, there is a third hidden message in the credits beyond both of these that reads, it's Bill's fault. This message appears very briefly before the screen fades to black. According to Fedrao, It's Bill's Fault was an inside joke regarding Bill Christensen, another one of the programmers working on the game, who had a particular habit of being at fault when a build of the game was busted. Front Mission Gun Hazard, the Japanese exclusive first entry in the Front Mission series, has a bizarre inclusion from a sample of a radical right-wing call after its credits. After the end credits, the sample can be heard very quietly under the sound of helicopters. Almost inaudible, the statement is spoken by a member of the UK radical organisation Combat 18. What can be heard is only a small sample of the full call. Gideon Z, who discovered this odd use of sampling, credits the track Dog Tribe by Fundamental, where it is included before the track begins. The portion of the call used, without distortion but censored by ourselves, reads MP's got your card mark, you b****s, we're gonna burn your building down, you f***heads. C-18's watching you, you communist n***er-loving p****s. 
For today's random piece of trivia, let's talk about Nintendo's promotion for Chibi-Robo Park Patrol on the Nintendo DS. Initially on release, Chibi-Robo was only sold in Walmart stores in the US because of Walmart's strong environmental program and social giving campaign. This environmentalism is part of the game's theme, and Nintendo wanted to go a step further than just limiting its release to a single store as if that would make a difference, and do its part to help the environment. Registering the game on Nintendo's website would enter players into a random prize draw, with the prize being packets of seeds given away to 500 people. Today we'll be talking about games which changed genre during their production. Video games naturally change quite a bit as they're being developed. Mechanics are expanded upon, and the game's world is fleshed out. However, some games end up being so different to their original concept that they're barely recognizable. One of these games is Super 3D Noah's Ark, which was developed and self-published by Wisdom Tree. The title was never submitted to Nintendo for official approval, and is the only unofficial North American SNES game to receive a commercial release. However, this isn't the most interesting fact about the game. Originally, the title didn't feature biblical characters at all, and was in fact based on Clive Barker's 1987 movie Hellraiser. Wisdom Tree acquired the rights to make a game based on the film for $50,000, and licensed the Wolfenstein 3D engine from id Software. Development for the game began on the original NES, a console which the team had experience in with their previous unlicensed game, Bible Adventures. To make the title run smoothly, the game would have needed a cartridge equipped with a co-processor to triple the processing speed of the NES. However, development of this version was halted after Wisdom Tree were unable to work around the NES's strict palette limitations. Another factor was the cartridge itself, which would have been extremely expensive to produce, had an estimated retail cost of $100 per unit. Wisdom Tree then allowed their Hellraiser license to expire, and instead retooled the game for the SNES as Super 3D Noah's Ark keeping the Wolfenstein 3D engine and first-person perspective. Another game that completely changed styles during production is id Software's Quake. Early reports about the game say it was much more fantasy-based, and featured a character similar to Thor, who also swung and threw a giant hammer. An even bigger change was that the game was also said to be a much slower-paced action RPG. The game was also said to feature third-person melee combat inspired by Virtua Fighter. The game was ultimately retooled to use the fast first-person shooter mechanics that id were known for. Quake isn't the only game that got a speed increase during production. Sega's Dreamcast classic, Sonic Adventure, was also planned to be a Sonic role-playing game. Takashi Iizuka, the senior game designer on Sonic 3 and Sonic and & Knuckles, pushed for Sonic's first mainline 3D title to be a Sonic RPG. Although the idea to include RPG mechanics was abandoned, the team decided to keep the more story-focused approach of an RPG. This ultimately led to Sonic Adventure having a much greater emphasis on plot than previous Sonic games. And now for this episode's random piece of trivia. This time we're taking a look at the Dead or Alive franchise. Dead or Alive 2 initially released in arcades, and was brought to the Dreamcast shortly after. Team Ninja were asked to port the game to the PlayStation 2 in just a few months, as a fast turnaround in time for the PS2's launch window would guarantee high sales. But before the team's two-and-a-half-month deadline was up, the company's sales general manager asked to borrow a copy of the game. The manager took the game straight to production without the team's consent, which led to the unfinished game being published in Japan. This sent the game's creator, Tomonobu Itagaki, into a deep depression and almost led to him quitting the game's industry. 
Soon after, Itagaki and his team went back to overhaul the game to create an improved version of the title, which released worldwide as Dead or Alive 2 Hardcore. Today we'll be talking about pirates and video games. There are many games that focus on or feature pirates. One of the best known series to showcase these buccaneers is the Monkey Island franchise. Monkey Island can be credited as one of the driving forces behind the sales of the point and click genre. And this success in the gaming market wasn't ignored by the rest of LucasArts, as they considered the idea of creating a feature film. This occurred while Curse of Monkey Island was in the midst of development, and so it was believed by many that Curse of Monkey Island was the movie itself. However, according to Sam and Max creator Steve Purcell, the animated movie would have featured an original story and introduced new characters. And we can't discuss the idea of a Monkey Island film without talking about Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean. Ted Elliott, the writer for Pirates, was rumoured to have worked on the Monkey Island film proposal, but this is factually incorrect. Many believed Pirates of the Caribbean was inspired by the games, but the film's writers emphatically deny the allegations that they plagiarised any element of the Monkey Island series. Addressing the rumour, Terry Rosio, who is another writer for Pirates of the Caribbean, stated, You should really know your facts before making not-so-subtle accusations of plagiarism. Ted Elliott was never hired to write a story or screenplay to the computer game Monkey Island, not in the year 2000 or any other year. Ironically, the creator of Monkey Island have acknowledged their inspiration and debt to the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Speaking of Pirates of the Caribbean, the Game Boy Advance release for Curse of the Black Pearl had a rather odd password. The password was L1TTLVN, which spells out the word Littlen, a contraction of the words Little One. When entered, the game will display a photograph of a newborn baby with the words Congratulations Tom and Yvonne. The only Tom credited on the game is the game and level designer Tom Heaton who would later go on to work as a design director for Supermassive Games, creators of Until Dawn. Since the Curse of the Black Pearl game was released in 2003, this baby would now be at least 14 years old. Sticking to the theme of pirates, let's take a look at 1987's Sid Meier's Pirates. As a way to deter software piracy, ironic, the player is prompted to answer questions when starting the game based on material in the game's manual. Failing to answer these properly will cause a spike in difficulty, with some parts of the game being impossible to overcome. This includes a forced failure during the game's tutorial sword fight. The game will also start the player with lower health and a smaller crew. It will also immediately force all four countries, England, Spain, France and the Netherlands, to target the player. And for today's random piece of trivia, we're talking about Mickey Mania, specifically an oddity in how it performed its duties in region locking. The Japanese version of the game is locked to only play on Japanese systems, and inserting the game into a non-Japanese Mega Drive will display a typical message which reads, developed for the use of NTSC Mega Drive systems. However, if the system is modified to allow for a switch to change the console's region, or the game is played on an emulator that can change the system's region during gameplay, the message can be altered. Switching the region during gameplay will cause the message to change to Oh, this machine has somehow become an NTSC Mega Drive system. The game will then proceed to boot up as normal. Usually, a game wouldn't recognize a region change mid-game, and it would only detect it as it's booting up. This behavior means that the game was constantly checking the region of the console while the screen is displayed. Today we'll be covering developers that included their children in games. 
The team at Game Freak enjoy putting easter eggs and references in their games, sometimes where it's least expected. Junichi Masuda was given the job of both producer and director for Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, and seems to have used this extra authority to include an easter egg of his own. Kiri, who can be found in Sutopolis City, provides the player with two berries each day they visit her. This girl's name, Kiri, is based on the name of Masuda's daughter. She was born in September 2002, just two months before the release of Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire in Japan. Masuda stated on his blog, I wrote most of the message that appears when she gives you berries, because Kiri is a special character for me. Near the end of the game's development, I was asked to include her without letting many people know about it. I came up with that message, with my hope for her. At that time, Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire was almost complete, and we were mostly debugging the game. But there still were decisions to be made. This isn't the only Nintendo product to feature a developer's child, as can be seen with Earthbound. The game's English localization was largely performed by Marcus Lindblom, who held a large volume of authority when it came to decision-making. During a livestream with Earthbound Central, Lindblom revealed that he named the character of Nico, found in Magicant, after his real-life daughter who was born during his work on Earthbound. Prior to this, Nico's name was a curiosity amongst English Earthbound fans, as the character didn't have the same name in Japan. Whilst this next piece of trivia is still speculation, we feel it explains a lot about the localization of the tactical RPG Chaos Wars. Released on the PlayStation 2 in 2006, the game features a cast of characters crossing over from Idea Factory's other releases, including popular series like Shadow Hearts and Grow Lancer. The title became a cult classic, not because of its gameplay, but purely because of the poor quality of the English voice acting in its localization. So, can you move, Uru? Karen? Wow, I really can't move my body. It's believed by many that all of the game's voice actors were family members of Chris Jelenic, the CEO of the game's North American publisher, O3 Entertainment. In the game's credits, several voice actors' surnames are also Jelenic, such as Quest and Tyler, with special thanks to Kay and Lee Jelenic. The act of including family members over qualified voice actors may seem innocent to many, as it helps to introduce your family to potential careers through your own success. However, nepotism is considered to be incredibly immoral and unfair in practice. This is because it restricts potential qualified individuals from having a chance at a paid gig, simply because they weren't born into a family already working in their desired field. Adding to this, the game's notoriously poor voice acting has caused some fans to harbor resentment over this decision. You swine! What do you think you're doing? And now it's time for this episode's random piece of trivia. Today we're looking at the action RPG Diablo. After installing the Hellfire expansion for the original Diablo, if the player creates a text document in the Hellfire install directory with the name command.txt, the dialogue spoken by Narkrul, the demon imprisoned in the void by Diablo himself, will change. Narkrul originally stated, Out of my way, wretched human! Retribution calls for he whom you call Diablo. But with the modification, he will say, I am free, free to confront the one who banished me to the boy, Diablo. Hi, everybody, and I'm free to reward you, little mortal, with these Aerosmith tickets. You'll be getting backstage passes. You'll get to meet Steven Tyler and the whole band this Friday at the Coliseum. Thanks for getting me out of there. By the way, I'm going to have to kill you. I'll be right back with the trafficking weather together. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Today, we're looking at projects that have the popular animator Don Bluth's name attached. Dragon's Lair is one arcade game which saw cult fame. With its hand-drawn animations and extreme difficulty spikes, many consider it to be a demonstration of how traditional art and video games can work hand-in-hand. -hand. Don Bluth, popular animator and film director of movies such as An American Tale, was one of the game's creators and artists. And while creating one of the characters, Bluth drew from some unexpected source material. According to Bluth, Princess Daphne's design was heavily inspired by Gary Goldman's Playboy magazine collection. Bluth and Goldman had worked together on several films prior to the creation of Dragon's Lair. Bluth used the magazines for reference, as well as partial inspiration from Marilyn Monroe. Bluth said, I, who had never looked at a Playboy magazine before, was introduced to one by Gary Goldman, who pointed out there were several provocative pictures within, and that they may inspire us. There was a lot of the Marilyn Monroe image that came across with Daphne. She was a cliché of the dumb blonde. Dragon's Lair received a large number of ports with varying results. When it came to the game's Amiga port, programmer Randy Linden, who worked on the game's copy protection to deter piracy, left a note to those wishing to crack the game. The note states, a message to crackers. Nobody wants copy protection. All it is designed to do is give a program a fighting chance. Now we realize that there is a great competition to see which group breaks this game first. However, if you do break it, please consider this. If you let this game out early after release, and there are few sales, it will be very difficult to justify follow-up games of this type. Nobody benefits, not the developers, not the user, and not the Amiga community. Please reconsider holding on for a while and not letting the game suffer. The decision is yours. Due to the fact that Dragon's Lair wasn't shared online until several months later, 
Either the notoriously difficult copy protection helped to deter illegal copying of the game, or this message pulled at the heartstrings of those who would have bypassed this protection. Randy Linden would later go on to work on the commercialized Sony PlayStation emulator Bleem before the project ultimately caved into legal pressure. Linden was then hired by Sony and was put to work on the PlayStation 1 emulation on the PlayStation 2, and later the PSP and PlayStation 3. Bluth didn't just work on his own projects in the game industry. In 2004, Bluth was contacted by Namco to work on one of their biggest franchises. At the time, the Japanese company was working on a new Pac-Man game with the development name Pac-Man Adventures. Namco contacted Bluth, hoping that he would provide concept art. Don agreed and was taken on as a design consultant. Bluth designed several characters and environments for the project alongside Blitz games, including a number of backstory elements. Whilst the game never saw a release as it was ultimately cancelled, a number of the elements from this project were repurposed for the release of Pac-Man World 3. And now for this episode's random piece of trivia. Today we've chosen to talk about Sega's arcade racer Daytona USA 2. The game isn't exactly known for its easter eggs, but it does contain a noteworthy secret. If the player stops at the finish line of the beginner's course for about 30 seconds while rapidly pressing the start button, a message reading Go to Hell will appear on the finish Line's bulletin board. And today we'll be looking at games which were censored in Japan. Censorship isn't uncommon in the gaming industry, especially when games are brought to new regions. In some instances, however, developers will have to censor a game for even their own region, as can be seen with Super Smash Bros. for the Wii U. The Japanese are usually quite liberal when it comes to sexualized content in games. That said, one trophy in Super Smash Bros. for Wii U was specifically altered in Japan. The Japanese trophy for Wonderful 101's Wonder pink is different to the international version. As well as having a different pose, all details underneath her skirt have been obscured with a shadow. As can be seen in the character's textures, Wonder Pink's underwear has been completely masked, making any upskirt peaks futile. It's believed this was done to comply with Japan's zero rating system and guarantee the game an A rating, which is comparable to the ESRB's E for Everyone. Some Western games are also censored when brought to Japan. For example, Deus Ex Human Revolution was censored when brought to the region. Because of his ability to punch through walls, the game's protagonist, Adam Jensen, is able to find a secret room. This room is filled with nuke virus software, a valve that will turn off some poisonous gas, and two adult toys on a mattress next to a bottle of lubricant. These toys caused the game to be delayed in Japan, pushing its release back by about a month. The Japanese Zero Ratings Board prohibits the depiction of sex objects in retail games, and according to Matt of Super Best Friends Play, who worked as a QA tester for Square Enix's IDOS Montreal studio at the time, the team had to perform dildo duty. The duty had QA testers manually search through the entire game in order to find any potential remnants of adult toys in levels. In the game's director's cut release, the dildos are absent regardless of the region. Another game which was censored in Japan was the cult classic Oddworld Abe's Odyssey. In the original Western release of Oddworld Abe's Odyssey, the logo for the Madokan pop depicts a Madokan head on a stick, dripping with blood. The Japanese design was changed to a more generic looking pop. Popsicle. Although this may seem like a simple case of censoring gore, there's actually a more specific reason that the Madokan Pop was altered. According to Abe's Odyssey director, the luscious Lorne Lanning, the redesign was due to a gruesome incident in Japan. Lanning told Eurogamer, 
In content, you always have to be careful with changing market conditions or events. For instance, for Madokan Pops, the logo was originally a head on a stick. And then something happened in Japan where a kid murdered someone in a schoolyard, school kids, and then hung the head on a stick on the front of the school, and it shocked the Japanese people. This murder was one event in the Kobe Child murders, as they came to be known, which occurred during the game's development. The updated Madoc and Pop logo was adopted internationally, and was used for all versions of Oddworld games going forward. And now for today's random piece of trivia. Today we're looking at the classic Sega Genesis platformer, Kid Chameleon. The game's titular protagonist, Kid Chameleon, was actually based on a real-life employee from Sega at the time, Dean Sitton. Sitton was involved in the early stages of development for the first Sonic the Hedgehog game, as well as being responsible for naming a number of badniks and Dr. Ivo Robotnik himself. Sitton also chose the titles of the Genesis games Quackshot and Decap Attack. In today's video, we'll be talking about people who have become addicted to gaming and the internet. Internet cafes aren't quite as prevalent in the West compared to the East, so stories surrounding these recreational cafes are sometimes hard to appreciate. However, they are home to a number of bizarre stories, most of which come from China. A 24-year-old Chinese woman under the pseudonym Xiaoyun had been missing for 10 years, and was presumed dead by both the police and her parents. With the popularity of internet cafes in the country, police will perform spot checks at the cafes to confirm no suspicious activity is being conducted. After a check in the Kangchao district of Hangzhou in 2015, police came across a woman using a fake ID. After taking her in for further investigation, it was discovered that she matched the description of a missing person from the nearby Dongyang city. Zhao Yun confessed the details of her identity, claiming that she had been a rebellious teenager who ran away from home following arguments with her father. Talking to Tianjiang Evening News, she stated, I had run away from home before, and at that time when I tried to ask my dad for some money, my parents wouldn't give it to me, saying I must be lying, so I decided to run away for good. She had spent the 10 years sleeping in internet cafes and bathhouses, often relying on donations from other cafe users, whilst also working as a cashier in the cafes to earn additional income. She spent much of her time playing the online first-person shooter Crossfire, a game developed in Korea with a strong following in the region. Customers of cafes would often ask her to play for them on their behalf, helping to support her even further. This is not the only recorded case of a person spending years of their life in an internet cafe. The Beijing Times reported on China's growing issues with internet addiction in 2013, covering the story of Li Meng, a young man who spent much of his time in an internet cafe located in Changchun. He only ever left the premises for food or to take a shower. Often, Li Meng would refuse to communicate with other customers, with the cafe owner claiming that he'd been there for so long that most people barely noticed his presence anymore, describing him as straightforward and of little annoyance. After a reporter for the Beijing Times was able to speak to the young man, he revealed that his monthly income was the equivalent to $322, 80 of which went to the cafe each month. Camps designed to help cure those with internet addiction have been created, though there are many reports of violence being used to discipline the patients. In August of 2017, it was reported that a Chinese teenager had died within 48 hours of being admitted to one of those camps. The cause of death is 
unknown, though the 18-year-old was found with over 20 external and internal injuries. The camp involved claimed the use of gentle treatment, including psychological counselling and physical exercise, ensuring that they do not condone the use of capital punishment. Many of the rehab facilities present themselves as making use of military tactics to discipline those with the addiction, with some being known to make use of electroshock therapy, a process which was banned by the Chinese government in 2017. According to the figures provided by a camp given to Wired magazine, they claim that as many as 80% of the youth in China struggle with the obsession, though the figure cannot be verified. And now it's time for this episode's random piece of trivia. Today we're talking about Mario Paint, because I feel like we all need a break after that. During the Mario Paint title screen, the player can mess around with the letters in the Mario Paint logo to see a variety of different gags. Clicking the letter R will play the sound of what can be assumed to be a baby laughing. However, if this sound is reversed and slowed down by around 50%, we can hear a close approximation of the original Nintendo recording. Instead of a baby laughing, we can hear a voice simply saying, Nintendo. Today we'll be focusing on media and events that influenced video games. When it comes down to it, practically everything is inspired or influenced by something else. But these inspirations are often overlooked or not very obvious on the surface. This is definitely the case for Nier's Drakengard series, which unbeknownst to most has never shied away from controversial inspirations. The game's director, Yoko Taro, even mentioned how the original Nier was inspired by the events surrounding the September 11th terrorist attacks, as well as the ensuing war on terror. In an interview with Kotaku, Yoko Taro was asked about his plot inspirations for the series' sequel, Nier Automata. Taro stated that while he didn't directly correlate the plot to events in the real world, on reflection, he feels he may have been influenced by the political climate at the time. Taro said, For example, changes from reason to emotion and objective to subjective, which are represented by President Trump being elected and the UK leaving the EU. I believe that themes in video games are something that players should find out themselves, so I have not specified one. Square Enix games don't always have such real-world inspirations, however. Final Fantasy XV's lead game designer, Juan Hasma, revealed some of the inspirations that he felt were used with the title. For example, the cooking and food culture of the game were influenced by Hasma's love of travel and cooking. Another focus of Hasma was making sure the game's fantasy world was a believable one. For this, he looked to Back to the Future Part 2, specifically how Marty reacted to the future compared to the people that lived there. Hasma stated, Near the start of the movie, you see Marty McFly walking through this alley. This is his first time into the future. And then when the scene opens up, you can actually see flying cars. There's hoverboards and all that stuff. But people are walking normally. Because they've seen that culture throughout all the years, they wouldn't be surprised. But you would be surprised. So the idea of the whole creative process is to provide the culture shock. But at the same time, you have to make it realistic. Another company that's drawn inspiration from popular media is Valve, who have made some of the most popular games of all time, such as the Half-Life series. One big influence for Half-Life was, in fact, Stephen King's The Mist. In King's short story, a mist descends on a small town, and brings with it a slew of terrible tentacled beasts. Within the story, the joint suicide of two soldiers, 
alludes to the idea that the events taking place were the result of experiments taking place in the nearby military installation. The working title for Half-Life was in fact Quiver, which was likely a nod to Arrowhead, the name of the military base in the book. And now for this episode's random piece of trivia. Today we're talking about a weird real-life connection between a dictator and the Prince of Persia series. After Colonel Gaddafi was ousted from his home during the 2011 Libyan Civil War, footage surfaced of rebels walking through his palace. Within this footage, it's revealed that adorning one of the walls is a large reproduction art piece of the front cover from Prince of Persia, Warrior Within. While the footage holds no clues as to why the art is there, many believe the painting's presence in the palace comes from Gaddafi's son, Moatassem Billah Gaddafi, being a big fan of the series. And today we'll be looking at point-and-click adventure games. LucasArts is known for their extensive history of the point-and-click genre. Their first published title, Maniac Mansion, released in 1987. The title innovated early point-and-click games with a new kind of interface and multiple playable characters. One term which Maniac Mansion brought to the industry was the use of the word cutscene. Originally coined by one of the game's creators, Ron Gilbert, the term was used within the code as a command to automatically save a state before the game is interrupted by a story scene. Though now a common practice within games, Maniac Mansion was one of the first to do so during actual gameplay and not just at the end of a level. LucasArts saw major competition in the genre, and from one company in particular, Sierra Games. This competition led to some unique marketing, with one instance getting Sierra into trouble over their advertising for King's Quest VI. The trouble was connected to a pamphlet included in the game's retail release, as well as a song in the game titled Girl in the Tower. Sierra sent the song to many radio stations and left a list of these stations in the pamphlet. The pamphlet also suggested that fans should call in and demand that the track be played. Seeing as the game sold 400,000 copies at launch, the result was an overwhelming number of calls for the radio stations. Most refused to play the song flat out, and various stations threatened to sue Sierra when their phone lines were jammed by people requesting the track. LucasArts followed Maniac Mansion with Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders, which had a subtle way of dealing with people pirating the game. When traveling to the various locations, the player must enter a relevant code from a book included in the game box. This was a common form of anti-piracy at the time, checking that the player had a legitimate copy of the title. If the key is entered incorrectly five times, they will be sent to pirate prison instantly and confronted with the prison guard who will berate them, saying, I just can't understand it, a nice boy like you flagrantly breaking the law. I hope you rot in there. As for you, I'll assume your finger slipped while entering the exit visa code. But if not, I think it's high time you bought a legitimate copy of this game. The designers worked long and hard to bring Zack McCracken to life, and we want to encourage them to create more exciting adventures, don't we? So hurry on down to your local software store and buy your very own copy. Remember, only you can stop worldwide stupidity. See ya! Without entering legitimate codes, the player will be trapped in the prison with no escape. And for this episode's random piece of trivia, today we're looking at the 2016 reboot of Doom. 
In the game, the player is able to get an achievement called Shoot It Until It Dies, which is awarded by defeating the Cyber Demon at the end of the Lazarus Labs chapter. This line is a reference to a fake fan-made scan of an old issue of GamePro magazine, which tells the player to defeat the Cyber Demon, shoot at it until it dies. Despite being a joke and a forgery, the image is often thought to be real by gamers that don't know any better. The image was made by Andrew Stein, the co-founder of Doomworld, a fan community for the Doom series. Today we'll be talking about video game developer office cultures. To most of us, school is something you just have to get through. You study, you make friends, well hopefully anyway, you're taught life skills to use in some sort of profession, and then it's time to move on. Goodbye regimented school life, or perhaps not. Back in 1996, a video game developer by the name of Giles Goddard became one of the first foreign or gaijin workers at Nintendo. During his time at the company, Goddard helped work on projects such as Super Mario 64 and 1080 snowboarding, before leaving to form his own company, Vitae, in 2002. When asked about what it was like working for Nintendo, Goddard told Source Gaming, Nintendo's a bit like a big school. You have a bell at 8.45 and a bell at 12 o'clock and another bell at 1 o'clock and then another bell at 4 or 5. You have bells throughout the day to tell you exactly what you should be doing. It's very Japanese. Furthermore, in a similar interview about the making of Super Mario 64 with Pixelatron, he says there was no talking. Occasionally, you'd get little groups of programmers or artists getting together for a chat, and somebody higher up would walk over and give them the eye, and then they'd sit down and shut up. Coincidentally, Nintendo did set up a school of sorts. During the development of New Super Mario Bros. 2, a course was put together with the intention of teaching employees from other backgrounds in the company how to make Mario games professionally. It was unofficially titled the Mario Cram School and was created by longtime video game producer Takashi Tezuka. The hope was to combat the fact that, allegedly, out of the entire development team, only the director and art director had long-term experience producing 2D Mario games. The idea paid off and actually led to several new features for New Super Mario Bros. 2 such as the nighttime levels, Dash Mario levels and two-player co-op. Nintendo aren't the only company that like to generate and develop new ideas through employee collaboration. Twice a year, the video game developer Riot Games hosts an event with the title The Riot Thunderdome. This is a 48-hour event where employees, or rioters, can get stuck in and create anything they want in any role they choose. The end goal of this event is to create a viable product that could potentially ship within 48 hours. Riot have said, Our goal is rarely to ship something to the public, rather it's to jam on creative ideas, get out of our comfort zones, and maybe learn some lessons along the way. This being said, a group of rioters known as Team PVC did manage to create a game called Zig's Arcade Blast in the 48 hours given, and is now available to play for free. And now it's time for this episode's random piece of trivia. Today we'll be looking at the game 1979 Revolution, Black Friday. Released in 2016, the game covers the 1979 Iranian Revolution. It was created by an Iranian-born game designer who previously worked with Rockstar Games, Navid Konsari. Konsari and his team conducted a number of interviews with Iranians who lived through this period of the country's history to make sure the game's storyline was true to life and based on their real accounts of what happened. 
Legend. On release, the title saw wide praise for its historical accuracy and authenticity. However, one group felt the game was nothing more than propaganda which aimed to make the players feel pro-American and anti-Iranian. Iran's National Foundation for Computer Games blocked all websites that sold the game within 48 hours of its release, ultimately leading to a countrywide ban. It seems the developers knew the game could see some backlash from the start. Several members of the development team used aliases to hide their identity from the Iranian government in the game's credits, and the game's concept artist ultimately fled Iran due to his involvement in the project. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In today's episode, we'll explore games which receive disdain from the people involved in the franchise and or the game's creation. Over the past few decades, the game industry has slowly shifted towards digital distribution over physical discs. Games changing after their initial release has since become common, with updates introducing new mechanics and adding additional features. One title that made use of this feature was 2003's Postal 2, which was known for its controversial subject material. The game had a less well-received sequel, Postal 3, which wasn't developed by the franchise owners, Running With Scissors. Fans of the series were extremely disappointed with the resulting sequel, as were Running With Scissors. In Postal 2's shopping mall location, a video game store could be found which had the signage revealing that it would open in June of 2016. To the surprise of many, these signs turned out to be speaking the truth, as the game was updated to make the location accessible. Inside the store, the player can find a VR headset similar to that of the HTC Vive, which when worn will send the player into a location known as Steam. Inside are a number of parody versions of popular Steam titles, as well as a sports almanac referencing Back to the Future Part 2. Speaking with the cashier will provide players with tips from the future, such as suggesting the player bets on the Red Sox or that you shouldn't buy Postal 3. Whilst Postal's disappointed creators didn't work on the third game, other developers had no one to blame but themselves. One developer over at Atari felt so strongly about the project they worked on that they left a displeased message in the game's data. Enterprise was released on both the Amiga and the Atari ST, and it's generally agreed by many that the title is of poor quality. 
On the game's second disc, the file warningd.bat can be found. This file contains all of the game's spoken dialogue. One of these pieces of dialogue isn't played in the game and is nothing but gibberish. However, by reversing the audio, one of the game's developers can be heard sharing his opinions on the game. Another title of questionable quality is the LJN-produced Back to the Future game on the NES. Bob Gale, the co-producer of Back to the Future, wasn't involved with the game even though he wanted to be. When asked about working with Telltale for their 2010 adventure games, Gale brought up the subject voluntarily, saying, I should note that the previous Back to the Future video games have all sucked eggs, particularly the Nintendo 8-bit cartridge made by LJN in 1989. Truly one of the worst games ever. The LJN people did not want any input from the filmmakers, but they promised to show us the game when it was ready. I was outraged when they finally showed it to me and had all kinds of things I wanted to change, but of course we were told it was too late to change anything. I actually did interviews telling fans not to buy it, because I was so ashamed that a product this bad would have our brand on it. And now it's time for today's random piece of trivia. So let's check out the world of hired hands. In Hitman Blood Money, an odd easter egg can be found in the mission Till Death Do Us Part. Near the water at the front of a mansion, a small coin can be found. When shot, the group of guests who had previously been fighting will lose all of their clothes before running towards Agent 47 clapping their hands. After a short while, this group will stop clapping and begin to fight again, though still wearing nothing but their underwear. Today we'll be looking at trivia surrounding video game logos and box arts. Over the years it's become much easier for publishers to showcase their games. For a while, however, games were predominantly sold through the appeal of their box art. Because of this, publishers considered the box to be one of the most important elements of marketing a game, and put substantial effort into them. Sometimes this effort can go unnoticed, as is the case with 1993's Doom. While the team at id were trying to come up with an image for their game's cover, illustrator Don Punchatz hired a model to pose in the reference photo for his final illustration. Doom creator John Romero was instructing how the model should pose, explaining that Doom Guy would be on a hill firing down on an infinite number of demons attempting to attack him. However, none of the model's positions were working for Romero. John said on his blog post, I threw my shirt off and told him to give me the gun and get on the floor. Grab my arm as one of the demons. I aimed the gun in a slightly different direction and told Don, this is what I'm talking about. Don took several pictures. I moved the gun some, the demon grabbed my leg, other arm, etc. I am the Doom Guy. Although Romero had direct control over how his work was marketed, some elements to box art aren't always in the hands of their creators. Dead Island, released in 2011, is an open-world survival horror game, and like many, many, many games at the time, it featured zombies. So it was no surprise that the logo depicted the silhouette of a corpse hanging from a tree as the letter I. However, due to the ESRB restrictions on how a game can be marketed, this was altered in the North American release to have the zombie silhouette standing instead. Despite this change, the logo remained unaltered in-game. Speaking of logos, there is much debate around the origin of the Atari logo, with multiple stories describing how it was designed. 
The logo was first seen publicly on the Space Race cabinet in 1973, and is perhaps one of the most recognizable logos associated with gaming and its history. In a 1983 interview with Video Games Magazine, the logo's designer, George Opperman, explained the origins of the logo, saying, Symbols are just visual nicknames that combine first letters and interpretive design elements. I kept trying to stylize an A, then I looked at Pong. Pong had a center line and a force, the ball, that kept hitting its center from either side. I thought that the force would bend the center outwards, and that's what I designed. Nolan Bushnell, co-founder of Atari, has other ideas regarding the logo's origins. He thinks that Opperman created various conflicting stories on purpose, such as rumors of it being designed to look like Mount Fuji, or a kanji character meaning hit. However, George Farrakow, one of the creative directors for Atari, thinks that all of this is untrue. He claims that he was handed a number of rough sketches to choose from, and simply picked one that he liked. He believes that Opperman's explanations are just stories. And now for this episode's random piece of trivia. Today we're talking about Serious Sam 2, a personal favorite from my childhood. In the game, while in the Forsaken compound, a small easter egg can be found. If the player turns off a path near the end of the level, they will discover a hat and coat of a duke, then subsequently a skeleton. An audio prompt can be heard stating, A secret duke skeleton has been found. Sam will also say, Dude, you've been hanging here like forever. This is of course in reference to the infamous Duke Nukem Forever, which had been stuck in development hell for several years and at the time remained unreleased. Today, as a Halloween treat, we'll be telling you some horrific stories involving video games. Let's be honest, we all love a good story about a controversy, weird event, or how a project went wrong. These horror stories come from all industries, and of course gaming is no exception. One unfortunate event occurred in Brazil in 2009, where one man used gaming material to provoke and terrify the public. The man was looking to collect a debt totaling around 42 Brazilian real, the equivalent of around 13 US dollars. The man broke into the house of a 60-year-old woman and held her hostage, although luckily no one was harmed. Images of the assailant showed his weapon of choice, a surprisingly slim-looking pistol. This pistol was in fact a Sega Light Phaser, the light gun used with the Sega Master System. The Master System had a strong presence in Brazil, being one of Sega's strongest regions for console sales. After brandishing real knives and negotiations with the police which lasted over 10 hours, the man let his hostage go, and the situation was de-escalated. Just trying to get hold of gaming hardware can be enough to push people to their limits, resulting in fatal consequences. In North America, the radio station KDND ran a contest in January of 2007 called Hold Your Wii for a Wii. During this time, the Nintendo console was in huge demand but with little supply, having sold out in most retail stores. The contest had 17 individuals drinking as much water as they could without urinating, with the winner being the entrant who could hold the most water. Just hours after taking part in the contest, 28-year-old Jennifer Strange passed away from water intoxication. The condition causes the liquid from the blood to move into cells, which then proceed to swell and break down. Brain swelling can also occur, causing devastating brain injuries. The contest began at 6.45am, with each participant being given an 8-ounce water bottle to drink every 15 minutes, though as the contest progressed, the bottle capacities increased to 16 ounces without the prior consent of the contestants. The presenters also added a rule that the bottle must be finished within two minutes. Jennifer was, of course, not the only one to suffer from discomfort. 
during the contest, a call-in at the station tried to inform the DJs of how dangerous this contest would be and that conducting it could be fatal. I want to say that, um, that those people that are drinking all that water can get sick and possibly die from water intoxication. With the response from the presenters being that they were aware of the dangers and that their waivers signed by the contestants protected them from a lawsuit as though that was the only thing that mattered. Yeah, we're aware of that. We're, that's yeah, they, we're they say releases, so we're not responsible. It's okay. And if they get to the point where they have to throw up, then they're going to throw up and they're out of the contest before they die. So that's good, right? At no point did the presenters inform the contestants that there was the potential for illness or even death. The DJs even commented on Jennifer's warped stomach, saying that she looked like she was three months pregnant. Jennifer was found passed away at her home after the contest ended, having complained about excessive pain from an extreme headache. Many of those involved in the show were fired, with the hosts feeling it was an unjust termination. They believed that because the contest was cleared by their legal department, that the blame shouldn't lie with them, but those who approved it. After a lengthy legal process, Jennifer's family were awarded $16.6 million in monetary damages, with all fault lying on the parent company of the station. The station has since stopped operations. Another unsettling controversy relates to the 1996 point-and-click adventure game Harvester. Writer and director Gilbert P. Austin held a negative opinion towards any sort of censorship, and his views ultimately led him to create a game which challenged the theory that being involved with or consuming violent media creates violent and abusive people. As expected, the game sparked controversy upon release due to its violent content, which was made worse by its use of interactive movies which made the content more realistic. Despite the controversy, all seemed well, and there wasn't any real evidence to say that Austin's violent game had led to any real crime. Fast forward to 2010, where Kurt Kistler, who plays the role of the game's protagonist, is arrested for possessing child pornography, an obvious act of child abuse. Bizarrely, when taken in for processing, Kistler was wearing a flannel shirt strikingly similar to the one he wore for the game 14 years earlier. The first person known to have died immediately after playing a video game was 18-year-old Peter Bukowski. In October 1982, he suffered a fatal heart attack immediately after making the high score table on the arcade game Berserk at Friartuck's Game Room in Illinois, USA. His death was the result of a rare heart condition. And tragically, that's not the only death associated with the Berserk machine at Friar Tux. In 1988, Edward Clark Jr. was murdered by Pedro Roberts over an argument about the ownership of a quarter-dollar coin that was used to play the machine. Clark was just 17 years old at the time of his death. Today we're exploring games with bizarre and unfortunate naming choices. Games are released across the world and in multiple languages, so finding a name that works across all regions can be troublesome. However, even just releasing it in one country can make for noteworthy titles elsewhere, as can be seen with the Korean-exclusive DS title, Touch Dictionary. The game is designed to help Koreans translate words to and from Korean, Japanese, and English. Created by YBM CISA, a company which aims to create software that teaches players the English language, the team behind the game had initially decided on a different title. YBM CISA seemed to try and abbreviate the game's title to make it appear more stylish, with the original name being Touch Dick. The game's developers were unaware of the name's phonetic similarity to Western slang for penis garnering attention online from the humorous name. And it appears the name was changed based on this reaction. Sony would later release a similar piece of software for the PSP, named Hand Dictionary, surprisingly opting to abbreviate the name. 
some other developers may need to make similar considerations on shortening their game's names, with one Japanese exclusive game's title leaving little to the imagination. Released in Japan as the title shown on screen, the game has the player act out the daily life of a photojournalism student who is assigned quests by people across the island of Yumagashima. Most of these missions involve taking photos of various schoolgirls' underwear, without getting caught for fear of repercussions. The game's name is likely one of the longest released to date, being translated as Summertime High School, A Young Man's Notes How a new exchange student like myself ran into his childhood friend on the school tour, then for some reason became super popular with the girls of his daily scoops on the school photography club, even though he only takes panty shots, and what he thinks as he goes on dates during his summer of island school life. It's possible the name is a joke by the game's publisher, D3, poking fun at the trend of long run-on titles for other Japanese media. A game title that caused some minor concerns for one person is DayZ, the open-world survival game. Of course, the game contained zombies, hence the name. And although the name was apt, lawyers of one person in particular, popular artist Jay-Z, weren't all too happy about this naming choice, as it could kind of maybe sort of sound a little bit like his name. Whilst the team at Bohemia were amused by the situation, with creator Dean Hall admitting that it made him laugh, they of course decided to ignore the lawyer's request and continue using the name. Additionally, an item appears in the game named the Magna Carta, based on the album of the same name by Jay-Z. And now for this episode's random piece of trivia. Today we're checking out Double Dragon Neon, the Double Dragon reboot from WayForward Technologies, which puts players in control of brothers Billy and Jimmy. A boss fight in the game's seventh mission has the player battle mistranslated mutants Bimmy and Jammy. This is a reference to the earlier released Double Dragon 3 from 1990, which included a typo during the game's opening sequence listing the characters as Bimmy and Jimmy. The game's poor spelling was also ironic, considering the game's subtitle was The Rosetta Stone, a reference to the ancient tablet that helped historians accurately translate the unknown language of ancient Egyptian into the known language of ancient Greek. Today we're going to be looking at hidden easter eggs and references in Nintendo games. Gaming companies tend to have different approaches when it comes to easter eggs in their games. Some absolutely litter their games with secrets, such as Bethesda and Rockstar, while others barely include any. Although they certainly have references to their own legacy and other games, Nintendo seem to be one of the companies with few easter eggs to show. That said, easter eggs do occasionally appear in Nintendo games, as can be seen with one of their newest titles. Within Super Mario Odyssey, the player can find Hint Toad in levels after a boss has been defeated. The character offers to give Mario information on undiscovered moons for a price of 50 coins, and originally appeared in Super Mario Galaxy. But what's interesting about Hint Toad is the actual map that they're holding, as it's not a map for a level found in Mario Odyssey. The map Hint Toad consults throughout the game is actually a map of Super Mario 64's Bob-omb Battlefield. This map can even be seen in a brochure inside the Odyssey itself. What's also potentially exciting about this easter egg is that it may be a hint at future DLC for the game, though of course we cannot guarantee that. Moving on to another Nintendo franchise, let's take a look at The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask 3D. The title has several bonus games within it, one of which can be played at the Town Shooting Gallery in East Clocktown. Inside the gallery, there are several items on the counter next to the gallery's owner. One of 
of these items is actually a puzzle toy made by Nintendo in 1980, called the 10 Billion Barrel. The object of the puzzle was to rotate the barrel cylinders and slide the balls between them, in the hope of organizing all of the balls into lines of a single color. The Zelda series gets a lot of love, but a Nintendo series with perhaps an even more dedicated fan base is the Metroid franchise. The fourth game in the series, Metroid Fusion, has a few Easter eggs. This includes a hidden GameCube early on in the game that can be found among some rubble. However, a more elusive secret can be found later on in the title. One area of Sector 4 is particularly difficult to reach, and can only be accessed by using the Shine Spark. Once there, dialogue between a Federation official and Adam will unfold, praising the player for finding the location. The conversation concludes with the Federation official saying, I wonder how many players will see this message. One of Nintendo's best-known series is one which crosses over their entire backlog of games, the Super Smash Bros. franchise. This next secret actually appears throughout multiple Smash titles, starting with Melee, and most recently appearing in Smash for Wii U. In each game, the texture for Ness's yo-yo has some tiny text on it that states the year of the game's release. In Super Smash Bros. Melee, the text says 2001. For Super Smash Bros. Brawl, it says 2008. And for Super Smash Bros. for Nintendo 3DS and Wii U, it says 2014. And now, for this episode's random piece of trivia. Today we're talking about Champions World Class Soccer, particularly the game's European version. Although the game appears to be a fairly unremarkable 90s sports title, it does contain a pretty hilarious translation error. If the game's language option is set to German, the translation for penalty, as in penalty shootout, is misspelled. The screen was meant to display the word Schiesen, with an IE in the middle, meaning to shoot. However, the game displays the word Schiesen with an EI, meaning to shoot. Today, we're taking a look at games that were never released. There are tens of thousands of video games in the world today, and for every game on the shelf, there was a game that was canned, or perhaps even never announced. Many of these failed games are lost to the annals of time, but occasionally some of them will resurface and have a chance to be documented. One example of a cancelled game that wasn't public knowledge until decades later is Sonic's Edusoft. The title was developed by Teartex in 1991, who began making the game after seeing Sonic's success in the gaming space. Details on Sonic's Edusoft development are scarce, but Sega were aware of the game's existence and allowed Teartex to develop it further. However, somewhere down the line, the title's production was halted and it never made it to the approval stage. As the name implies, Sonic's Edusoft is an educational game for the Sega Master System, and includes games relating to mathematics and literacy. The game also has three mini-games, none of which hold any educational value. One interesting point is that because the Sega game developed so shortly after the release of Sonic 1, likely just before Sega had started developing Sonic 2 in November of 1991, Edusoft is probably the second Sonic game that was ever in development. There's a surprising amount of cancelled games attached to high-profile or cult franchises. The next scrapped game we're talking about belongs to the much-loved Spyro series, and is yet another educational game. Spyro Ever After was a game briefly in development by Knowledge Adventure in the early 2000s, and would have featured Spyro in a fairy tale setting interacting with characters from popular fables. It's not currently known why Spyro Ever After was scrapped, However, some fans of the series believe that Spyro's license holders didn't want the franchise marketed as something just for young children, and wanted to continue marketing Spyro to a slightly older audience. 
This would make sense considering the direction the series took with the Legend of Spyro trilogy. Another character that was popularized during the PlayStation's lifespan is Crash Bandicoot. The Crash franchise has a surprising amount of cancelled games, but one of the more interesting scrapped Crash projects is the game Crash Landed. Crash Landed appears to have been a reboot of the series, and was developed by Radical Entertainment for the Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, and Nintendo Wii, with Renegade Kid possibly handling the Nintendo DS version. The game's plot centered around Crash trying to save primitive bandicoots, named Bandicoots in the concept art from Neocortex, and Dingo Dial would have served as a secondary antagonist for the game. The title was cancelled after two years of development, following Activision acquiring the rights to all of Sierra and its assets. Activision decided to lay off the entire Radical Entertainment studio behind Crash Landed, and didn't seem interested in continuing development with another studio either. And now for today's random piece of trivia. Today we're talking about the Midway Arcade rail shooter Carnival. Although the title was well known for its graphic content and, for the time, lifelike gore, one of the game's secrets is even more morbid. Inside Khan Evil's files is an image of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. In the image, Dahmer is holding a paper bag containing the head of then-CEO of Midway Games, Neil Nicastro. The unused image appears several times in various sizes within the game, and was most likely used to fill empty spaces in the game's data. Today we'll be looking at the games industry and the use of patents. In many ways, patents can be seen as a double-edged sword. Whilst their existence is to help prevent others from stealing designs and technology from creators, they can also restrict creativity and progress within various industries. Nintendo, for example, filed a patent in November of 2001, which incorporates both a phone handset and game controller into a single unit. This means that whilst the concept phone can be used like any normal handset, particularly in a time before touchscreens, it also allowed users easier control of gameplay with physical gameplay buttons, just like the N-Gage, you know how good that was. It took almost five years for this US patent to be granted to the console giant. Several diagrams were submitted alongside their claim and patent description, demonstrating their concept. Whilst the idea is fairly obvious in design, mobile gaming was still in its infancy when the patent was filed, and certainly not the multi-billion dollar industry it is today. The iPhone, often considered to be the catalyst for the mobile gaming market wouldn't be announced for a whole six years after the Nintendo phone patent was filed. Nintendo isn't shy about taking their ideas and protecting them through patents. With Eternal Darkness, the company has a patent which grants the specific description of a sanity system in a video game. The patent covers not only a character's sanity level and how it might be affected by gruesome encounters, but also how a character's preparations before an encounter can affect how much the encounter impacts them. It also describes how as the character's sanity level decreases, gameplay is affected. This includes controlling game effects, audio effects, and visual hallucinations, which can all be unique with each playthrough. With this in mind, some games still utilize such a system in a variety of ways, including popular titles such as Indigo Prophecy, released as Fahrenheit outside the US, and Amnesia The Dark Descent. 
However, patents can prevent developers from incorporating certain design ideas, and some companies will defend their rights over these concepts. Sega, for example, filed a patent prior to the release of the first entry in the Crazy Taxi series. The patent covers a game display method, moving direction indicating method, game apparatus, and drive simulating apparatus. More specifically, the filing claims ownership of a driving game which permits characters to be present in a city and can prevent cruel images of collisions with characters. Characters in a dangerous area are intentionally moved away. The patent also makes claim over an arrow display on screen which guides the player to their destination. This caused issues with EA who did not take Sega's patents into account with their release of Simpsons Road Rage, which copied many elements from the Crazy Taxi games, including its 3D arrow display. Sega took EA to court over the issue, but both companies decided to settle outside of court for an undisclosed amount. And now it's time for this episode's random piece of trivia, and today we'll be dipping our toes into the Thief universe for an unusual easter egg. In the 2014 release of Thief, developed by Eidos, there is an interesting music nod. In the game, the team make reference to an earlier title created by the parent company, Square Enix. During Chapter 2, the Thief Taker General can be heard whistling a tune at the end of a cutscene. No point in wasting a bolt. and he'll whistle it again as the player approaches his office later in the chapter. The tune may be familiar, as it's actually Frog's theme from the popular RPG Chrono Trigger. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 